Uh, let's recognize uh, those that got uh, baptized again with a round of applause. It is an exciting transition, transformation. It's my privilege this morning to uh, read from God's Word. Uh, you can join with me. It's Luke 12, reading out of the ESV version, Luke 12, verses 49 through 56. Also up on the screen, I believe. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus went on to say to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, oh, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is God's word. Watch your step. It's a little wet, Matt. Just... As we get into a really heartfelt, warm message from Jesus this morning, um, he knows how to say some hard truths, and we are going through Luke, and just a, a reminder, as you, as you read the Gospels, each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are written to a specific audience representing a characteristic of Jesus, and here we see Luke is writing to a young believer, Theophilus, for our benefit, and we see this hard saying come in the, in the backdrop of his desire for us to have a hope. So I open this morning with asking, what are you hoping in? What are you hoping will happen this afternoon? Maybe for some of you it's been a long summer already. It's been back-to-back trips, work, and, and you just are hoping to catch a nap. Maybe some of you are hoping to catch some, some golf or uh, a ball game on TV. Or maybe some of you are hoping to go play, play at the beach or play with your kids and play some sports. Um, are you hoping that Jesus will come back today? When I said that, someone was like, whoa, are you, was it really that bad of a week? I'm like, no, but it was a bad week. I mean, there's a lot of people hurting, sick, dying. This earth is not meant to be our home. I've often helped my frame of mind refer to it as a camping trip. And eventually, I want a stable home that Jesus is building for me in heaven. I want to get there. And here, we see Jesus comes and starts talking, and Peter's confused. He's like, are you talking to us or the crowd? Like, who's really this meant for? As the question was posed, are you hoping Jesus will come back tonight? Are you ready for Jesus to come back tonight? There's a, a preacher that would go around training young preachers, and in one of his trainings, he said, do you believe Jesus could come back tonight? And it was kind of a trick question, because we see in, in the text earlier on, before we, we get into our teaching portion, it says in verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter replied, are you telling that to us or for everybody? Because who are you teaching, the disciples or the crowd? Are you expecting Jesus to come at any hour? And he tells us 
this interesting stories about the hope he would have for us, that we would have the hope and the, the readiness, knowing his return is imminent. It's, it's urgent. And so we see these two examples where he wants us to have this hope that he's coming back as the antidote for greed and for worry. As we have been talking about Jesus's teachings on greed and anxiety and worry, and he's saying, if you're excited for me to come back, then you won't be greedy and you won't worry. And so he tells the story of servants who keeps their lamps lit, waiting for the master to return. And when he does return, they switch roles and the master starts serving the servants, which blows your mind, especially in this context. And then he talks about a homeowner being ready for the thief that comes, which sounds more like a headline out of a Texas or Midwestern rancher who's like, yeah, a thief was coming, but I took care of him. It's like, wait, what, Jesus? And then he goes in and, and is really highlighting the need to be ready. As we see in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like pearls of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. As he says, it will be good. Literally, blessed are those servants, those who have had to wait until the second watch, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., or the third watch, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., the world's very last time period before Jesus returns. There's a blessing there as we wait. And the second that he was saying, among all the sayings that Jesus said that impressed Paul, he repeats in 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 2, a verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. And so Paul mentions that in 1 Thessalonians, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them. Suddenly is labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So the backdrop of Jesus saying there's a fire and I wish it was already burning. I wish the world was already on fire. You're like, is this middle school Jesus just burning everything like I did? Like my sister's Barbies, G.I. Joe's. Like how does fire work? Let's just burn everything. Is this angry, depressed Jesus just wanting everything to burn? He can't fix it so he wants to destroy it. No, Jesus is about to tell us the baptism of fire he has to endure and he's like, you guys gotta be excited. There's a huge party and I'm gonna invite everybody, but I have to suffer, but you get the invitation and you get to be, you guys get that in Revelation? We get to heaven and all of a sudden, we're guests at the banquet and God is the manager who serves us. He comes and finds us ready and takes us home and there's a huge party and Jesus is like, it's gonna be awesome for you, but it's not gonna be, as awesome for me. I'm gonna suffer. I'm gonna go through this anxiety, the agony, the weight as we see. But first we learn of the divisiveness of Jesus. He's coming not to bring peace, but a sword to divide. And secondly, we learn about the agony. 
And the last thing we'll see is the rebuke. You don't know the real Jesus unless you know about them both. We learn about the divisiveness of Jesus caused by the self-centered teaching. Now before you freak out and are like, Jesus wasn't self-centered. His teaching was all about him. And he was selfless in his character, in his conduct, but his teaching was all about him. It was always about him. And we also learn about the agony of Jesus caused by his self-denying love. The reality for Jesus was that he prophesied fire had not fallen, but he longed for it. I have come to bring fire on earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, how I wish the fire was already burning. Jesus longed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit with fire, which is the regeneration, the new life, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sealing of that salvation through the Holy Spirit, the sanctification growing to look, think, and act like Jesus, and then what lit the world on fire was the ignition of the church when the Holy Spirit rushed in and and was above them like flames and they began to speak the gospel in all the different languages as all the different tribes and tongues gathered in Jerusalem. He longed for that. And how he longed for judgment to fall, to take up the winnowing fork in his hand and to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, chapter 3, verse 17, at last bringing justice and equity to the earth. This was the real longing of Jesus' heart. These are not just Luke's ideas written down. These are Jesus' words. And this reality, Jesus was that he first had to be immersed in death. He first had to be baptized by the fire to take on the wrath of God. But I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's complete, we see in verse 50. The idea here is how totally governed and oppressed I am until this is accomplished. What made the weight so terrible wasn't the, the agony but it, or the prolonged torture. It was the fact that he would become sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he knew he would be separate. He knew the wrath of God would be on him that was meant for you and I. And the contrast is that Buddha, when you look at the world religions, and Buddha is one, he's enthroned beneath this bow tree in in this lotus position, reaching nirvana. His lips are faintly parted with a smile as he cracks one, and he's moving beyond the power and and, and the, the reality of this earth And he says this, he who loves 50 has 50 woes. He who loves 10 has 10 woes. He who loves none has no woes. He has said, and his eyes are closed, and he removes himself, reaching nirvana, untouched by the challenges of this world. But the Holy Trinity has this boundless love where we see in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes, he who loves the world takes on the world's woes. It's not just, oh, I'm going to love this. The whole world is in sin, and God sends his son to save. And so we see Jesus before his disciples with his eyes open, saying, I have a baptism to undergo, and how great my distress until it's completed. A little while later, his eyes are open. He goes into Jerusalem, and he says, man, my heart is troubled. And does he say to his father, save me from this hour? No. He says, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name in John 12. 
And in the garden he prays, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He knows the wrath. He knows, he's tasting it, he's seeing it, he feels the weight, and he's in this agony. And as he prays more earnestly, his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground, Luke 22. And on the cross, having become sin for us, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then his eyes closed. The difference here is that Buddha's eyes were closed to shut out the world, but Christ's eyes were closed having taken all of the world's sin upon himself. It's amazing when we see that the Savior was in this pre-cross reality, came to divide, knowing the power of the gospel and the purpose to save, and yet this agony that not all would choose and not all would believe, but also the immense suffering that he would continue to endure, knowing he would be separated. So the first point we see is the division that Jesus described as one of the most heartbreaking kind. A family of five, a father, mother, daughter, son, and daughter-in-law will be torn apart by enmity. The prophetic nature of Jesus borrows from Micah 7.6, which prophesied coming hostility between younger generations and the old. And this is worse. The division is mutual and goes every generational direction. The shocking effect came because peace, not division, had been the grand theme of Jesus' coming. Luke starts out with the nativity, angels showing up to the shepherds, praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men whom favor rests. This was reference to the coming Prince of Peace that Isaiah 9, 6 spoke about. It was also this conscious fulfillment of Zechariah's song about how his son John the Baptist would pave the way for the Messiah, the rising sun to shine on those living in darkness and in shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace, Luke 1, Twice, when Jesus healed people, the disciples heard him say, go in peace. When he sent his disciples out two by two to preach, he instructed them to say peace to this house. And now Jesus says, you guys think I came to bring, bring peace? Pfft, come on, I came to bring a sword. I want division. This gospel is going to divide. The 12 were shocked. But we see during the first 400 years of the Roman Empire, by speaking Jesus Christ's name, you'd either be in jail or worse. And to the world religions, the name Jesus has been noisy, disruptive, and offensive. During the you know, last 70 plus years, we see the increased persecution in China. Anytime a Muslim converts to Christianity, if they stay alive long enough, it's through immense persecution depending on where they're at. Even in America, we've seen people reading the Bible in public get arrested, people meeting in church outside getting arrested. Charles Colson wrote that he regularly was being interviewed and he started a prison ministry and during the interviews, he, his conversations, would they would intentionally go away from Christianity or Jesus. And even before the interview began, the interviewer would say, hey, we're not going to bring up Jesus' name. We're going to strictly keep it to politics and prison and criminal justice. One of the major U.S. daily news outlets said it's our policy not to print the name Jesus Christ because it's an editorial judgment. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
That's so offensive to our pluralistic society and to other religions saying you can live however you want. And Jesus says, no, I didn't come to tell people all paths lead to God. I didn't come to tell people that what you believe doesn't really matter. I didn't come to say, hey, just do whatever you want. Just don't punch someone in the face and try not to kill someone. Like, he didn't say that. He talked an awful lot about himself. In fact, we can say his teaching is self-centered. When he came to give his life to serve others, he was talking about himself. If you look at all kinds of the things that Jesus says, compared to great founders and, and prophets, Jesus is always saying, what you think of me matters. When you think about it, the other great founders of religions are always saying, what you think of me does not matter. It's always pointing to, to someone else or something else. George Whitfield's a great example. He said, let the name of Whitfield perish so long as Christ is exalted. Meaning, I don't care if when I'm dead, nobody remembers me again. Just give yourself to my Savior. Jesus says, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is constantly saying, who do you say I am? Because, think about it for a second. We're used to hearing him say that. We're used to it. Growing up in church, maybe you've been around church, you, you've been around Jesus, you're used to that. But it's so ridiculous, especially when you think Jesus is fully God and fully man. Think about it. Your, your friendships, maybe a romantic relationship, or you need to go see a counselor, and, and it's Jesus. You're, you're on a date with him, and after a few minutes, he's like, yeah, enough about you. What do you think about me? I mean, I'm pretty amazing. Like, if you knew who was having coffee with you right now, you would ask me to go order you coffee. Like, I am, what you believe about me actually is what matters. If you don't believe in me, then your life's not going to amount to anything. It's amazing, the boldness. Now, you go to a counselor, and he interrupts you with your marital problem. He's like, yeah, anyways, dude, what do you think about me? Like, I'm pretty awesome. You're not going to go back to the counselor. I don't know. Maybe you go on a date with him, and, and as a female, you're like, hey, that was pretty cool. He took all the pressure off me. I didn't have to talk. He just told me these amazing things. Remember the rich young ruler a few weeks back? We looked at him. He comes to Jesus and says, What's my, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, sell everything and follow me. I need to be more important than anything you own. As long as I'm more important than every cent of your wealth, then you can get into heaven. He sits down with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus wants to talk theology, and okay, so maybe we'll get down into the demon-possessed woman you, you exercise the demon out of, but how does this work? And he's like, you're spiritually dead. You need to be born again. It's about me. I'll, I'll give you new life. Jesus is constantly saying, if your eye keeps you from me, if your hand keeps you from me, pluck it out, cut it off. It's not worth it. Eat me, drink me. It's always about me. What do you think of me? Interestingly, we see the prostitutes and the people with AIDS, the broken, the poor, the lepers, the outcasts. Those are the people then and now that can spot a phony. They know if a politician shows up for, for an angle. They know if someone's coming to do something because they want to make themselves look good. And, and they know, and they don't go near those people, but... Interestingly enough, Jesus was always talking about himself, but was always giving himself away. And, and those are the people that were attracted to Jesus. People don't want to come to self-absorb people and talk about their problems, but Jesus combined this self-centered teaching 
with this pristine, incredible, humble, compassionate, moral character. So we have this unique person that all the great religious teachers fall into these two categories. Either they have great lives without great claims, and all you can do is admire them because they have this phenomenal life, but they don't really teach anything phenomenal, and they don't have any great claims. And some teachers had great lives without great claims, and they were people with tremendous character, but they never really talked about themselves. They always said, me, I don't matter. What you believe about me doesn't matter. So we see there's these two categories, great lives without great claims, and you can just admire them, or the second category, great claims without a great life, and then you just laugh at them. And so those are the two categories. You either have to decide, is Jesus who he said he is, or you have to hate him and fear him? That's the reason why he polarizes and divides. The great life without great claims, all you can do is respect them. Great claims without a great life, all you can do is laugh at them. That's the only alternative. As you come to Jesus and say, oh, you're, you're my God and my Savior, or you're a liar, and I, I refuse that you think you're the only way to God. The fact that Scripture was written is the problem. What got them to say these things? These were Jews who worshipped one God, and all of a sudden they started worshipping Jesus as God. What changed? It was the resurrection. It was what Jesus was saying. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be trials, so you better get excited and know that I'm coming back for you because this thing's going to blow up soon, and I know it, and it's going to be so hard, this baptism of fire, and I wish it was already here. You ever been there? You're like, you got to go in and talk to a boss, or you got to have a hard conversation, and you're like... I just want this to be over with, just get past today. I know I have to do it, but you're just kind of white knuckling through. That's Jesus is like, okay, we're getting towards the end. I know we're heading to Jerusalem, and it's going to be hard for me, but good for you. If we attempt to follow Christ, you'll experience division. It's also true, of course, that many Christians suffer not because they follow Jesus, but just because they're judgmental, boring, pious, self-righteous, and they are self-centered, and they're not telling people about Jesus. They're always talking about themselves, and it's just annoying. But it's a fact, though, as, as Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, they will be. 2 Timothy 3.12. Sometimes the division and persecution comes from those you love most, Family. It's one thing when it's a boss that fires you or coworkers you can't get along with or persecute, but when it's your family, how do you deal with that division? And that's where we see the next point, the agony. Knowing this has to happen, knowing. Jesus said, I came to set the earth on fire. I came to bring fire on the earth. Oh, that it were already burning. Jesus knows something about living with stress. You bet. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the agony that he's been carrying around on his shoulders. I came to bring fire to the earth. There are a number of times through, through the scripture where the word fire can, can mean some different things in the Bible, and, and we're pretty certain in the Old Testament, it says, I came to judge the earth. I came to bring God's judgment, the cleansing fire of his judging wrath. We see sometimes that fire can even refer to the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 when it descends and the disciples are speaking in different languages and tongues 
He didn't say, come to bring the Holy Spirit and what agony I'm in about it, and this is going to divide everybody. That's not what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, fire is the way the judgment day is described. As we see in Isaiah 66, the prophet says, See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He'll bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. This is purifying fire. As we see in in Luke 3.16, John the Baptist says, Someone is coming to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. But then in verse 17, he says, And his fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and the chaff is burned with unquenchable fire. What's that mean? He's saying on the last day, the judgment, he's going to take up the wheat that's his chosen and the chaff that aren't believing are going to blow away. So we see that fire means to cleanse. The two reasons we see the Bible talks about God's judgment as fire is because fire does two things. One, it cleanses lasting things. For example, when my kids get their clothes dirty, girls are playing in a mud kitchen, or Micah opens a paint can on his baseball jersey, and Dad actually told him to do it, so it's on me, and paint splats everywhere, and I'm like, oh, custom jersey, look at that. He's like, it's not funny, Dad, not cool. That was not, that's all you, Dad. I'm like, I know. I don't burn the clothes. Like, those are temporary. It's not going to last. But gold and silver, you can't just get a Tide pen and try and, you know, magic eraser that out. Like, it's, that has to take fire because it lasts. Our souls, we last. Now, to, to purify gold is one thing. Now, how do we purify the whole earth? That's an intense fire. How much more will it take fire to cleanse the universe and the human race? Jesus was extremely sensitive in the agony he knew he was going to face embracing the justice of God. After Kevin Costner filmed the, the movie Field of Dreams, he was interviewed, and, he, and it was interesting. He said, I don't really believe in an afterlife. I don't really care to believe in heaven or hell. I don't even believe right will necessarily triumph. But I know this. All human beings have an almost primal need for judgment. Think about it for a minute. Do all villains get it in the end? Do all victims get vindicated? Does crime really never pay? In Revelation 6, we see John the Apostle looks up, and I'm going to quote it for us. He sees, I saw under the heavenly altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony. They had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe And they were told to wait a little longer. Think about all the innocent blood that's been shed. All of the widows and orphans that have been ground into the mud and the genocide, the oppression, the injustice that continues. What if there is no afterlife? What if there is no spiritual realm? What if there is no eternity? What if there is no judgment day? Not only does that that mean we'll never be able to overcome injustice, but we can't even identify it because you see, unless there's a standard an eternal standard by which everyone is judged, who's to say what's right and wrong? Aldous Huxley said he wanted the universe to be without meaning so that he didn't have to believe in an afterlife or judgment day. I did not come to this, he says, in an intellectual exercise. I wanted the universe to be meaningless because I wanted to live the way I wanted. To declare the universe meaningless was the only way I could be liberated sexually and politically. He said, I had to choose either I could believe in judgment and then I would be crushed under a load of guilt 
all my life, or I could not believe in judgment, and then I could live as I want, but live in existential despair all my life. Those are my only two alternatives. I chose freedom, liberation. Frankly, that is the problem. If there's no judgment, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment, what hope is there for me? Let's say that again. If there's no judgment day, there is no hope. What hope is there for the world? We see when it's all done, no one will ever address it or ever remember you. If there is no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for you and me? Because we know we've all failed. We know we've never measured up to the standard. And we are always going to be seeing oppression or causing it, guilty or seeing the guilty, and there's no liberation. It's hopeless. And the third way here is that Jesus came and said, I bring the alternative. I come to bring fire. I came to bring judgment. I came to be the judge and to right all that was wrong. I must undergo and how constrained I am until it's completed. And so we see here, he's saying, you guys know, you guys check the weather app every day, right? Before you leave, at least you, you wives and moms and women do, right? You got to know what you're going to wear, skirts, shorts, dads. You're like, is it sandals or boots? Like, is it, what are we going to do today? Is it, and, and once a year, you might see if it's raining in California, you know? And you check the weather, you talk to your friends about it. And if you're a surfer, you're constantly like, man, are there waves? Too bad we can't check if there's sharks in the water yet. But Jesus is like, you know your stock market trending, you know the weather, and yet you can't see. Verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. You're still so focused on this physical world, you don't see God in front of you. You don't understand it. He looks at them and says, will you be able to be baptized with the baptism I'm going to receive or to drink the cup I'm going to drink when the disciples are saying, hey, can we be at your right hand or your left hand? He's like, I gotta go be baptized. Can you take the cup I'm about to drink? Can you be baptized with the fire I'm about to be baptized in? You guys are so concerned with the physical world and you're standing in the world and the seasons, but you're not aware that the time on this earth is so close to being up. I have a baptism to undergo, he's saying. I'm gonna come and bring fire to the earth but before I can, the fire has to fall into my heart. And so the rebuke is, you should be looking at me. I'm going to bring division, and I have this agony because it's going to divide, and it's going to cost me everything. But I'm going to go lay my life down. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane we go back to where he's sweating blood. And even the prospect of this baptism was enough to get the eternal Son of God scared out of his mind. If even the prospect of this experience was enough to get him down on his knees praying to God, he's literally sweating blood, which medical people say is a sign of severe shock, knowing that fifth cup of God's wrath was handed to him. And he said, Lord, if there's another way, he's like, nope, okay, your will be done, not mine. I'll take the cup of your wrath. So we see when he says that, I'll be baptized with fire. I have a baptism to undergo. How distressed, how straight, and how beaten to the ground I am until it is finished. And that is what he's longing for because he knows when he takes the fire, when he takes the baptism of God's wrath, we're free. And we've looked for it in all these different places, but we'll never out 
where God's love and forgiveness and grace. When you think about it, it's what we've always been looking for. Marriage doesn't give it to you. Great relationships won't satisfy. Your professional success, rising the corporate ladder, being over your business, being over employees, the international acclaim maybe some of you have reached and you're too humble to let me know. I don't know, but all I know is those who've reached those heights, they still are empty and looking for peace, peace with God. And so Jesus is saying, I've come to bring you peace with God. I've come to give you the eternal inheritance, and I'm bringing you into the next phase of eternity. One day I'm coming back for you. Are you excited? But the apex of our success in this life is not what we were designed to be satisfied with. It was a relationship with God. So to look to God and say, Father, one of these reasons I have had such a miserable life is because I've been preparing to stand in my own name before the judgment seat. And that's where some of you are. You're saying, you know what, I, I can do it. I'll stand before God and I'll make a defense. And, and I'll, I was pretty good. I did pretty good things. I didn't kill anyone, so shouldn't I get in? I see that I could never do that, and I hope you're seeing that too, as you see the perfect standard. Any thought action or word spoken that goes against God is enough to separate you for eternity. And when we see that our motives, just our motives are selfish, I could never stand before a perfect and holy God and say, hey, let me, can we grade on a curve? Like, I did pretty good. This is what you've been looking for, Jesus, to say, I've taken all of God's wrath that was against you on me. Do you realize how different you would be if we believed this? If we truly understood that he came to cast fire on the earth, and you wish it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I can't wait to get this over with. I can't wait because it's going to be so good for you, and it's going to be so hurtful to me, but with the joy that is set before me, I can't wait to do this and die on the cross in your place. And you may say, well, I, I do believe this. I've been a Christian for a while. I believe this. And I would say, sure you do, but how, how are you at forgiving people? Do you really believe that Jesus has forgiven you? Because if you're freely forgiven, then the end result would be that you would freely forgive. I tell you, maybe you have trouble. You're like, oh, I have trouble from time to time. Do you know why you have trouble forgiving people? When we believe that Jesus is the judge and he deserves to be the judge, because he is able to bring fire on the earth, and he said anyone who believes in me will be exempt from that fire because I've taken it for you. As we believe this, then why are you bitter and why do you have a hard time forgiving? When you're bitter, you're sitting there saying, oh boy, I can't wait till this person finally gets this or they finally get that. And you assume that role as judge. Instead of recognizing that's not our place, the judge was also the justifier. They can't control you anymore. You don't have to worry when you've been freely forgiven by Jesus and you can freely forgive those who wrong you. Jesus is not going to let anybody get away with anything. That person you're so mad at, either Jesus will pay the debt for that person or that person will pay their own debt and they'll face the wrath of God, which is horrible. And so those who've been forgiven, that's why Paul's telling his buddies in all of Romans, he's like, you guys got to believe in Jesus. He died for you. He loved you. I'll trade places with you. It's the same agony that Jesus had, only Jesus had it on a grander scale. Paul even said, I'll trade places with you. If you can go to heaven, I'll go to hell. That's his love in the reality 
desiring them to know Jesus. Emotionally, you'll be put through the ringer. Emotionally, you will be devastated until you stop trying to be the judge. Secondly, we see those who walk around moping and low self-esteem and depressed, punishing yourself. It's like a rearview mirror. You just can't look through the windshield. You get stuck looking in the rearview mirror of all the things you said you shouldn't have, all the things you did. Like, man, do you know what you're doing? You're trying to be the judge. No wonder you have so many problems. No wonder you're crushed because you may believe intellectually Jesus is the judge, but your actions show a difference. You're trying to be the judge. The Christians never worry about whether it's practical to do good because they know God is the judge and the justifier. There's always the possibility that if we try and do good things, someone will show up in the middle of the night and they'll shoot us through the head. There's always that reality. And so as Christians, we're never going, oh man, is this going to look good for me? Or do? It's always about Jesus, and there's always a challenge and a reality that we might be persecuted, and our life might be required of us, but that doesn't keep us from serving. That doesn't keep us from forgiving. When we apply this doctrine that Jesus is the judge, then no matter what the government, no matter what our work environment, no matter what our home life is, no matter how hard this season of our life is, we can go to God and go, you're the judge, and you're going to give me the mercy and the grace. And I know, and like the thief in the night, I know that it might be the second or the third watch, but you're coming back for me. And I, I have to believe that which then allows me to forgive those who sinned against me, which then allows me to not mope around depressed, thinking that I missed my opportunity or I missed my purpose, but I can trust that, God, you're changing me. God, you're using this suffering and this trial that I'm not trying to minimize, but you're gonna use it to show me your mercy and your grace and to see, Lord, how you're gonna set things right. And God says, a little while, it won't be long, everything will be made right. No one will get away with anything. All accounts will be squared away. Every evil, every act of injustice will be restored. We'll be redressed in heaven with robes white of righteous deeds because of Jesus, what he did, not because of what we did. Therefore, don't worry about whether it's practical to do good or, or your budget's going to be okay if you, if you give like, those are things that you have to be like, okay, I'm loving you more than my budget sometimes. I'm going to trust you with it because you're telling me to do it. Sometimes it's, uh, my timing doesn't work, but God, it's your timing, and you're telling me to do this. Okay, I'll serve them. And it really costs a lot to do the right thing, doesn't it? It doesn't cost us anything in light of eternity, though, right? When you think about what Jesus gave for us, it's the least we could do to give what the Lord is requiring us. So as we close, Jesus came that we might not only intellectually believe we're forgiven, but receive that forgiveness so that his love would flow through us to others and forgive those who've wronged us, knowing in the end, he's the judge, and he's declared us righteous. And so I'm going to give those believers time to, to spend a minute in prayer with the Lord, and I'll come back up and close this. But if you're here and you're thinking, man, I... I know I haven't measured up. I know I've trusted more in myself and thought I could do good. And I've looked to my accomplishments, my achievements, and they never seem to satisfy. 
No matter how many hours I work, no matter how many promotions I get, there's something more. And Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. If you believe in me, then you'll live eternally. Your, your sins are forgiven, and I've come that you may know that. And it's going to divide family. It always has and it always will be divisive. But then we can forgive, and then we can have that peace, knowing we're doing what God's called us to do through his spirit, filling us and sealing us. So if you're there and you're saying, I believe I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior, you're saved. God already saved you, and you're just saying, telling us what he did in you. And so we want you to do that and share with us what God's doing in your life and allow us to come alongside, help you take the next step in your journey with the Lord. If you're already a believer, then you could spend some time with the Lord, and I'll come up and, and close this.